0: ASHA Voices is continuing its collaboration with the International Issues Board and Special Interest Group 17, with today's episode featuring two conversations about working and studying outside of the United States. I'm J.D. Gray. We'll hear from an award-winning professor whose life and work straddles the U.S. and Zambia. Through her experience managing a study abroad program, Chizomo Salamani presents questions you might want to ask yourself before working or studying internationally. But first, we're going to hear from audiologist Ishara Ramkasun, associate professor at Gallaudet University and audiologist and SLP Mershin Pillay from Massey University in New Zealand. In 2020, the duo co-published an article in the ASHA Journal Perspectives titled Civic Responsibility and Global Healthcare. Care Audiologists, Audiology Service Learning in Africa. The article examines the experience of students from the United States who participated in a study abroad program in South Africa. They write that the program demonstrated improved civic responsibility in audiology graduate students as related to their ethical leadership, cultural competence, and community engagement. When I spoke with Ishara and Mershin, I asked them why they thought there was a relationship between these attributes in this study abroad experience. Mershin speaks first.
1: One of the key issues for me up until doing that article Ishara was the way in which people from outside of South Africa would do what we would call a helicopter kind of service. They fly in and fly out and oftentimes it was a Facebook opportunity to post pictures of working with people in vulnerable conditions. And this didn't sit uh, settle easily with my conscience for how it is we would work with people from other institutions and other countries. The notion of civic responsibility were often considered to be about a national civic responsibility was something that we thought would be a useful way to look at understanding hearing healthcare globally. So there's a civic responsibility which is often nurtured very closely, regulated with laws even within the borders of countries. But when you leave that country and go to another one, there seems to be a different set of rules governing how people practice or enact civic responsibility. So I think that was a key thing for us, was looking, well, how do you do this then? How do you achieve what it is ethically, morally, and in practice terms, this thing called civic responsibility. How do you do that when you leave your country and go somewhere else?
0: big questions, not just for audiology, but, but for CSD professionals in particular, and for healthcare professions, with students may want to go overseas, help other folks. But also, like you said, what does it mean to be engaged there and not just come in, take photos, feel good about the work you're doing in a personal way and leave, but to actually have civic responsibility? So what kind of lessons did you learn from this program?
2: I think it was interesting
0: Shara
2: Mershan and I started developing the study abroad program about seven years ago. It took us almost one year to develop the program. It had both cultural uh, components and also clinical service and training components in the program. We had, I think, monthly meetings for almost many months to put together the goals of the program and talked about how we wanted the program to do more and designed the activities as well as the training the students underwent before, during, and the conversations we had after would potentially reflect perhaps a deeper level of engagement, but also we were hoping to see what the students would get out of it beyond the standard things that Mersham described earlier.
0: And what were some of the specific things that that you included that you were hoping would would lead to these results?
1: I think maybe one of the key or the fundamental issues we focused on was besides what does it mean to engage civic responsibility in another country. The other sort of key principle was a pedagogic justice which we referred to in our article. Traditionally the kind of learning that happens or the way in which knowledge shifts from the north to the south tends to be very unidirectional. And we wondered if there were any learnings that could happen the other way around, as Ishara alluded to earlier on, what could the students also take away for themselves from the context as opposed to seeing themselves of giving to the context. The notion of pedagogic justice was the thing that we thought was critical to look at how we develop the way we learn from each other. And it was interesting. Many of the students, through a process of reflection, said that what they learned in South Africa, they could take back to their own communities as well.
0: What surprised the students? What are a few common differences between audiology as it's practiced and researched in the U.S. and in other countries?
2: I think maybe the biggest impact that the students saw from a clinical perspective was actually seeing the community model of practice in action. That is not something they traditionally get to see extensively in the United States. Most of their training experiences were medically based. Of course, there are opportunities for them to also see an educational model. And the rehabilitative model in audiology in the United States mostly just focuses on the provision of hearing aids. Whereas in South Africa, the students were able to see how an audiologist could work in completely different settings but doing the same kinds of work that they had been trained to do. You know, we covered a number of different clinical activities in South Africa, things like hearing screening, including pure tone testing and otoscopic exams. But we also did noise analysis in an open air market. And we did counseling to those individuals who were being exposed to excessively loud noise. And the students were able to see how that was done in an environment that was outside of the traditional clinical setting. And I think that was what is different to everything they had experienced prior to going to South Africa. Some of the students were aware of some opportunities that might present itself for more kind of public health models of practice in audiology in the US, but there are not a lot of those. So for most of the students, the different ways that they saw audiology could be practiced in South Africa was new and different.
0: I think a lot of audiologists in the US are familiar with the medical model as that's probably what they use. But can you give us a a quick definition of the medical model and the community model and just how they look different?
1: In the early 1990s, when we started working within community based framework, An academic called Glenn Jager developed a community-based rehabilitation program across a variety of rehabilitation professions. Traditionally, the medical model would say, let's focus on the ear and hearing as a physical, physiological, biomedical interaction, whereas a community-based model would say, but wait, there's a whole person attached to that, and this person comes with a social, cultural, political identity even, and what about having to deal with those things? So it became the ear moved into understanding the ear and hearing as a social, cultural, political entity. And so within a community-based framework, it's about how do we then work with this person who comes with all these complexities, as opposed to just going, listen to the sounds and drawing an audiogram. Right. Perhaps
0: we're seeing more inclusion in the medical model as we talk about things like healthcare disparities of issues around the humanities, but the community model seems to incorporate more ideas that we might think of as being a part of the humanities. Is that correct?
2: I don't know. What about access to healthcare? I feel like the community model places access to healthcare front and center. And in the medical model, while there are discussions about access, it's not directly usually handled in the audiological world. It's a matter of, did you make it to the clinic? Okay, you are here. Now I will assess your hearing, and I'll tell you what the results are of your test. Whereas the community model would say, we know there are individuals out there who potentially have communication difficulties. How can we go about reaching those individuals and providing greater access to audiological services for them? I don't know, Moshin, what you think about kind of the way I'm framing that.
1: No, I agree with that. I think, uh, yes, access is critical because essentially, in the, and especially in a country like South Africa, but arguably in most countries across the world, healthcare access is limited or is determined by your financial ability, your financial competence to access this. And so if you're looking at here in healthcare, and access that's definitely something that a community-based framework will emphasize differently so in other words going back to the old who adage about health care for all so that would be one of the aspects
0: i'm thinking about the students in the program and i'm wondering when they came back was the infusion of a better cultural understanding was that something they came back with as well from the program
2: oh absolutely in fact I'm so excited to say just a couple of days ago, a student who went on that very first trip and who contributed the data that is published in that perspectives article received a tremendous promotion and is now director of a CI clinic here in the U.S. And when asked what was it about her training program that impacted her decisions in her career, she actually referenced the study abroad program and said, The international experience she had in the program sort of led her down the path of where she took her first job, made her more open to engage with a different community. So she actually took a position outside of the contiguous United States for a while and then brought that back into the United States a few years later and specifically expressed to us during her reflection conversation, but also you know, what is it, um, five years down the line is still saying it's impacted how she's chosen her career path, how she views her clients and the care that she provides.
0: Ishara and Mershan told me about another aspect of their collaboration. This involved students researching on site in a large open-air market in South Africa. The group was examining sound exposure. I asked Ishara and Mershan to tell me about what they learned during this time and how they conducted the research.
1: Much of it was service delivery and some of it the research was more on higher education and how we think about hearing healthcare. but the service delivery aspects fell within the Broad parameters of looking at measuring, so the four sort of broad components of measuring hearing, as well as looking at worker and other controls for hearing or managing sound exposures, etc. The the key thing that drove this program was because it was based in community was how we would engage workers in co designing in in delivering the service and evaluating the service and even reporting on what it is we were doing with them. And so central to a fair amount of what we did was focusing on people as having agency and listening to the stories that they have around, not just their lives in general as workers, but also about the experiences of listening and of being exposed to the sounds that they were exposed to in the marketplace. And one of the sort of most interesting things that came out of it was totally something we wouldn't have discovered if we didn't use this framework, was the fact that this market, which it developed organically, it wasn't a designed market. So it was just basically people who were without a job, who said, let's set up a little stall on the side of the railroad and then develop a service. And then it mushroomed into this huge, big market over the years. This market had, for example, people who were delivering cultural and religious services. So they would play music and have this as a site that people from this particular religion or cultural background would come to learn from because of the um, movement away from the rural parts of South Africa and uh, being more urbanized now. They use the space as a way to regenerate uh, their cultural and religious knowledges and practices. So it was an interesting way of discovering the purpose. It wasn't just that they were playing loud music. They did it for an entirely different purpose, which was we considered quite valuable. So it was about how we recognized it and then worked with that within the Hearing Conservation Program.
0: Ishara says the students measured noise levels, taking measurements throughout the market. Students compared their data, putting it in a spreadsheet. I was thinking about how these experiences might inform students' view of audiology. They asked if there was something similar in the U.S. that students could be doing.
2: Oh, absolutely. If you think about the fact that in the United States, noise as a source of hearing difficulty or hearing loss is primarily sourced from occupational settings. So we have OSHA, that puts out guidelines, for example, on how noise measurements are taken and what is the impact on a worker's hearing, but we don't have any consideration for the social settings in which noise occurs. Now, there's been a good bit of attention in the literature for a while now about noise sources in society as a whole, and that includes things like The use of personal music players, but also things like roadway traffic noise. If you're living close to a train station, the impact of that on the psychological effects, for example, annoyance, fatigue, sleeplessness, but there's also more attention being given now to hearing and the challenges. More individuals perhaps experience things like tinnitus, which sometimes can be considered a precursor to hearing loss when they are exposed to high levels of noise in social settings. So I think if we look at what the students did in South Africa in the open-air market, they came to learn that you don't necessarily need a type one sound level meter, which is large, bulky, and expensive in order for you to get an idea about the noise levels that are present in a community. I think it really gave the students the opportunity to realize you can be more engaged with your community and potential clients. They don't have to be your current clients or current patients for you to be aware that a community might be experiencing high levels of noise. So even a simple thing as having, if an audiologist is in private practice and having a more basic sound level meter on hand which can be taken into the communities that they serve to conduct noise analyses to examine the kinds of circumstances that people are living in to determine what is potentially causing them to be at higher risk for, for hearing difficulty or hearing loss. So I think that application is very direct actually.
1: And just to add to this, this work was done in relation to the broader work that I was uh, had started under the University of KwaZulu-Natal so, And one of the research agendas that had been developed through that the university there was looking at developing appropriate equipment. Besides measuring sound using these uh, sound level meter apps, we also, and this was part, I can't remember if we actually did ask this current lot of students that, that we reported on, but certainly what we did do was we used an app that incorporated citizen reporting. So we got people to report in the experience of listening to the sound, not just to also document or quantify the sound that they were exposed to. It humanized sound mapping a little bit more for us in a large space uh, like this marketplace.
0: You know, for a lot of audiologists, we think about the medical model, we think about coding and billing are ingrained in the practice uh, pretty closely. And something like this, going to the community with to know where the sound is in the community, How do you think some clinicians, some audiologists might react to a practice like that if they're not meeting directly with a client they're not able to bill for that either?
2: I think that really speaks very extensively to the much broader healthcare crisis in this country. If you think about the fact that, unfortunately, I mean, you know, money talks, right? So audiologists, particularly those in private practice, will say, I can't do that because I can't bill for it. I won't have a source of income. And that is a specific problem. But at the same time, if you take a much broader lens to the healthcare practice, change needs to happen probably in a much broader way, so that there is actually some kind of payment structure involved to facilitate more public health initiatives surrounding hearing, and in this instance, noise. And it's very known impact on the auditory system, that's kind of what I think it's something that needs to be worked on on a much broader scale.
1: And just as an outside observer looking in at a country that foregrounds health insurance or billing and coding as a way to determine what is good healthcare is interesting in that it's not, that's more of a fiscal strategy to understand sharing healthcare as opposed to human or person-centered approach to looking at this. So if I was to position the work that we're doing in the market, it foregrounds a population-based approach, a public health audiology program. And yes, if that means we have to reconsider who the client is and then who pays for that, then that needs to be thought of within new generation healthcare policies. So that's, as you say, billing and coding is possible but it shouldn't be the thing that determines your service.
2: For sure. And I think also because if I put my public health um, hat on, because I also serve on ASHA SIG-8 Public Health Audiology, this is an instance where the public policy agenda needs to change. When we look at not just assessment, but policy that can enact a whole different way in which we provide hearing care, to the communities, that is what will lead to greater assurance, ensuring that what is best for the community is actually being done. But it's um, it seems like it's a really um, tough goal to reach, I think. But nevertheless, it's the approach that we strongly favor, I think, the person-centered approach rather than the fiscal-centered one.
0: Well, I want to thank both of you for taking the time today to have this conversation. Thank you.
2: Oh, absolutely. Thank you, JD.
0: We'll hear from our next guest in just a moment. First, I want to recommend an episode from the Podcast Archive. I mentioned earlier that this is a continuation of ASHA Voices collaboration with the International Issues Board and SIG17 Global Issues and Communication Sciences and Related Disorders. Find the first episode from this collaboration in the podcast archive and hear the story of Amanda Piper, an audiologist working in Trinidad and Tobago. While you're there, look for other episodes about public health and audiology, like the two recent episodes looking at how audiologists use mobile clinics to serve rural areas in the U.S. Find them online at on.ash.org podcast. Chizomo Soleimani's career straddles the United States and Zambia, where she was born. Chizomo is an associate professor of communication sciences and disorders at Baldwin Wallace University in Ohio and a coordinator of ASHA's Special Interest Group 17. She says her primary goal in Zambia is to help support the development of speech-language pathology, and in the United States, it's to help the development of graduate students. Gizomo built an award-winning study abroad program. We spoke in July about the questions students might ask themselves before studying internationally.
3: I think when we think about traveling and connecting to... rest of the world, we shouldn't just think about the problems that we want to solve for ourselves or the problems we want to solve for someone else. We should be asking ourselves, what stories do we know about the world? What comes to our mind about the different places where we want to go? And I think that it's really wonderful for people to consider traveling abroad and working abroad. But that needs to be tempered by respectful curiosity and also an assumption of knowledge on the part of the places where we go. And I specifically am speaking to people from the U.S. because this is the American Speech Language Hearing Association, and we don't always realize that what we have written into our autopilot, into the way that we do things automatically, is an assumption Of lack of skill or lack of knowledge or deficit unless it's Eurocentric or unless there's a stereotypical understanding of excellence. And so when we are interacting with people who are different from ourselves, we can be unintentionally harmful if we make all kinds of assumptions and we don't lead with respectful curiosity and an openness to growth and learning. So I say if somebody wants to go abroad, then they first should ask, why am I interested in this? And then they should next ask, what stories, what can I discover here? And what are possibly things that I could be surprised by? Our process of engaging in multiculturalism is a multifaceted one. As a multicultural human, I've constantly been learning and growing and re-examining and changing the way I look at things. I, I went back to Zambia in 2010 and I lived and worked there for a few years. And I remember when I was there, I was, I was like, okay, so speech pathology, I've studied this thing. I know some things about it. And I worked in this hospital with incredibly capable humans, right? Incredibly capable practitioners. But I struggled to see the assets. And I had to at some point say to myself, everyone here exists in the year 2010. In order for them to exist in the year 2010, there have to have been a lot of things that have worked to get all of these people here. And so even though things were different, I that then reoriented my perspective. And I shifted to this place of what can I learn? And then from that moment on, I was elated to see all the things that I could learn and all the opportunities. And oh my goodness, Zambia is so rich, you know? And I think that people would maybe assume that a place like Zambia wouldn't be rich with all kinds of possibilities and opportunities. And I think it's really important for us to question our autopilot, to question our assumptions and move forward with respectful curiosity.
0: Chizomo says she was surprised to learn that professional specialization within speech-language pathology was not valued in Zambia the way it was valued in her life in the U.S. When working at the hospital, she was encouraged to think of her work more broadly. Chizomo says that she had to rethink her perspective. She learned about the history of speech-language pathology in Zambia and how it connects to Zambia's independence.
3: Whenever we consider like cultural competence or we think about engaging in different environments, Even those of us who've grown up in certain cultures, there's still so much for us to learn. It's imperative for us to have curiosity and to not assume that we have competence or knowledge when we're moving into another person's space.
0: It reminds me of what you were saying earlier about if you talk to students or you talk to professionals who are wanting to work internationally, you said that You might flag if they say that they want to go because they think specifically they'll be able to help people there. Some might hear that and think, well, that's an altruistic thing. Why would you maybe think that's something to flag?
3: Yeah, I think it's really important for us to think about history, right? We are all the product of (laughs) the historical stories that surround us. There is a past that we have to consider as we move forward, because even though we might be well-intended, we might be altruistic in our endeavors, we can't forget what people like us or who've looked like us have done in the past. And so I'm specifically thinking about the history of colonization. Like if you know anything about the British Empire, there was a moment where the sun never set on the British Empire. And what that means is that the entire world more or less has a legacy of colonialism and has been impacted by Eurocentrism. And so while we might think that we're doing something good, the way that people receive that is informed by our past. And so we need to be careful as we move forward. I don't want to discourage anyone in their endeavor to do good, because I do think that Intentions can be understood, and people, for the most part, can be patient with people who are well intended. But we also know that there are many people who've been well intended that have inflicted harm. And so, when we go across the world, particularly to countries that are that would be classified by the World Bank as like lower middle income countries, I, I like the word majority world countries because they exist in the majority of the world, they make up most of the world. When we think about going to most of the world, we often have a lens that we don't realize that we have. We have filters that we don't realize that we have and those filters can be unintentionally harmful.
0: Gizomo says she's asking people to use approaches that assume assets and says that when you use a collaborative approach, quote, you seek to provide a safe environment. You seek to elevate and empower others' voices." End quote.
3: It's important for us to have open ears to listen. I mentioned the example about myself because I always like to say, like, I, Shisomo as as many professional development things I've done, as many books as I've read, research articles, workshops I've done in these spaces still have so much work as a Zambian citizen, as someone who has dedicated time to learning about Zambia and my culture and spending time at the feet of my family, learning things that I may have not picked up because of living in the United States. Even I have to be careful about how I enter my own country. If I have to be careful and if I have to examine my privilege, I'm only asking people to do the same things that I'm willing to do.
0: Mm -hmm. If someone does want to work internationally, there are things that they do get from it. You mentioned having a sense of curiosity can be a a positive thing. What are some of the good parts about working internationally? Like, What might someone get from that experience?
3: Yeah, I think the, the one thing that you can control in your life is you. And so I think international experiences are amazing learning opportunities. They're amazing for personal growth. And I think that you can also learn from other communities about new ways to approach different considerations in our field. I think that there's so much learning that is possible. I think you can appreciate the beauty of another place.
0: Chizomo says she co-wrote the last chapter of a book called Evidence-Based Education in the Classroom, Examples from Clinical Disciplines. In the last chapter, Chizomo and her co-author write about the relationship between culturally responsive practitioners and international education, including data and reflections from groups Chizomo took to Zambia. She says the students often indicate they've seen personal improvements.
3: I know in our profession, there's been an increasing focus on interprofessional education and interprofessional practice. And when you go abroad, you get to see how teams are used, perhaps differently elsewhere. Your understanding of being a member of a team based on cultural association could be really informative. I think that there's lots to learn, but the key in that learning is willingness to learn. And I know that oftentimes after we get our degrees, we, and we are deemed experts because we have worked long and hard to achieve that title. It can be hard to surrender that and say that we now are back in the place of learning. But the people that I've met who are the best educators and the best in what they do remain curious and continue to put themselves in in a student perspective.
0: So we've talked a little bit about the questions one might ask themselves before working internationally and the benefits of doing so. In the more practical sense, how might someone pursue this if they say this is the type of experience I think I would like and, uh, you know, I have maybe the time for this right now in my life. What are some of the practical considerations and, and how might they pursue this?
3: I would say I think the first place to start is in building relationships and then moving forward with an asset-based perspective, looking for opportunities, being honest about what you can offer. So absolutely own your expertise, but then also own your expertise, own your privilege, own your power, but then also own that you don't know about this new environment, think Really good things happen when we tell the truth of our stories, and telling the truth of our stories doesn't mean denying what you do know or what you have or feeling guilty about what you do know or what you have. What it means is recognizing that there are differences in resource allocation, that we have a history that we need to be honest about, and then also an openness to learn and and honesty about not knowing.
0: I think about in my job, my job is one that relies heavily on curiosity, and I express that in two ways with the podcast. One is through the questions asked, but the other is through listening.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I love that. My university has been in the process of developing a Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Campus Center. It's an initiative through AACNU, the Association of American Colleges and Universities. And we participated in the Institute for Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation. And there were some trainings and one of the trainings was talking about healing. And that healing comes from deep listening and telling the truth of our stories. And so I absolutely love that point about listening. I think if we are willing to listen, we're active listeners, we're responsive listeners, and we're truth-tellers, I think there's a lot that can be gained in that to start
0: Chizomo encourages people to connect with colleagues in other parts of the world virtually, something that many people have become comfortable with during the pandemic. She says these connections and conversations can often be beneficial for both parties. A special thank you once again to ASHA's International Issues Board and ASHA's Special Interest Group 17. Learn more about both groups by following the links on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org podcast. While you're there, you'll find links to ASHA resources on social determinants of health, cultural responsiveness, working abroad, and so much more. That's at on.asha.org slash podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.